idea very basically is that there's this important service currently provided in a monopoly fashion by the government, but it doesn't have to be provided solely by the government. Just like you don't have to have your mail delivered solely by the postal service. There's competition. The idea here is, has been introduced by Lon Fuller. He was one of the primary thinkers in this, and he said that the law is the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. That, that's what the law is. That's the definition of law that Lawn Fuller Davis. It's a great definition. It really answers a lot of questions you might have. Let's, let's just kind of parse this out a little bit. Notice that he says the law is the enterprise, the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. And that word enterprise serves two functions here. One is it makes a very important point about the law being an ongoing process. It's a service industry that has a continual influence on our lives. It's not just the king going out and laying down a bunch of rules, maybe having them carved on a stone tablet and then walking away. It's this ongoing process. There's a give and take, there's super, super uh, uh, vision of people's behavior, there's correction if they get it wrong. So uh, that's a very important point I'll say more about later and it's, it's a point that a lot of, I teach in the law school, a lot of first-year law students have to learn. They think when you go to law school, it's kind of like when you play Monopoly and you take the lid off the box and you flip it over and you read the rules. Hey, well, I'm going to go read the rules. There's more of them than with Monopoly, but it's a whole bunch of rules and I'm going to read them and then I'm going to know the law. And it's just not what you do in law school. I mean, that's, that's part of it. You walk out the door with knowledge in your head about what the rules are, but that's the least of what you do in law school. For the most part, you learn to think like a, a lawyer think like a lawyer and that means taking the rules and applying them to the real world and that's a messy business that's where you really want a lawyer's help anybody can look up the law but to know what to do about the law given the facts on the ground that's what you pay for it's really what you pay for another thing about enterprise that's great is it opens your mind to the possibility that oh enterprise well that kind of reminds me of a business and indeed it should that's the idea that Lon Fuller was after he says the law is the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. And if you think about it that way, the law is all around us and it comes from a lot of sources. Notice an important thing Isaac said about the drinking rules. I thought that was kind of interesting. He said, well, there are these rules, there's these laws out there in the real world. And they tell us about who can drink alcohol. And they're kind of silly, but they're there. And then he said, but we made a deal with this university. We want to respect the deal we have with them. That's really why we want you to obey those rules. Now, that's a very real constraint on your behavior. And I hope you'll take it seriously. Isaac wants you to take it seriously. But it's, it's a law in a way. It is a law in a way because it will govern your conduct. Now, Fuller observed, and you might have been thinking this too. You might be thinking, okay, that's an interesting idea. I'm going to think about this, but that's kind of crazy. Because, because I mean... Okay, it's fine to send a package via UPS or FedEx. I can see that. But how can you have more than one legal system working at the same time? So that might be an objection to this view, and it's a good objection. It just turns out it's not a telling or convincing or fatal objection. It's just a clever thought that you should have. And now we'll explain why it does not at all put an end to this inquiry. Fuller saw this objection. He ran into it, and he said, well, you might object, oh my gosh, there could be, under this wide, broad, generous definition, 
more than one legal system in operation in a given place at a given time. And Fuller said, yeah, that's true. And that's the world. That is the world we live in. And indeed it is. Right here in this room, right now, think about it. There's all kinds of legal systems constraining our behavior. There's one that's imposed by cops. This is why, if you feel like it, I, I guess this might be why, you're not climbing over the desks and throttling me. Uh, probably none of you, you, none of you have that look. I get that sometimes. You all look pretty safe. But you know, there's, there's reasons why you don't do things like, you, know, you see a laptop, you know, you don't steal it. Actually, I know you guys don't even think about that. Because you're civilized. You've been socialized to live in a peaceable society. But there are people who are constrained solely by the thought that uh, if they catch me again, they're going to throw me in the slammer. So that's an influence. But there's other things, other systems that control our behavior. In fact, I could, I could go on with the state. You've got state and federal law, both of them kind of overlaid one on top of each other right here and now, right here and now. So if you were to do things like steal a computer, it could be both federal and state offenses. It could, you could be violating municipal law if you park in the wrong place. So we've got municipal, state, and federal law piled up one place, same time, right here and now. But that's not the end of it. Isaac told us, hey, you know, there's some things I want you to do. I want you to do some things since you're here with us and we're providing you this benefit and we want you to learn about liberty. Let's treat each other respectfully. Don't Twitter. Don't drink if you're not supposed to. Show up on time. Those are all rules. So this is kind of IHS body of law that constrains our behavior. And I'm sure the institution that's hosting us has rules. They probably say things like, you know, recycle all your cans, please. Lots and lots of rules. Perhaps you're a, you're a devoutly religious person. Maybe at dinner tonight, they're serving bacon, and you pass on that because there's certain rules that constrain your behavior. All those rules exist at one and the same time, one and the same place. It seems to work okay. It seems to work okay. If you want another example of this, I don't have a place I could draw a picture of this, but um, I would draw a big picture, a big map of Washington, D.C. Has anybody been to Washington, D.C.? You know something about it? Probably maybe some of you have interned there. It's laid out in kind of a big diamond in a big diamond with one point to the north, one at the south, and the other two points. And so people in D.C. talk about the quadrants of the city. You've got northwest D.C., and then at sort of the opposite side in a lot of respects, you've got southeast D.C. So northwest D.C., somebody who's been there. What kind, of, what kind of place is that like? What's it like in northwest? Anybody? Wealthy. What's that? It's wealthy? Got a lot of trees. It's pretty, pretty nice. Kind of Tony. And do you happen to know what's going on in Northwest? What kind of particular sort of institution do you run into a lot in Northwest? Like uh, diplomats? Oh, yeah, all the, the uh, embassies. Yeah, that's where all the embassies are. A lot of embassies in Northwest D.C. Does anyone happen to know what happens in Washington, D.C. if, say, a diplomat from Azerbaijan gets in a traffic incident. He runs over a pedestrian. What happens? Does anybody know? Maybe you studied international law? I'm sorry, what's that? He has diplomatic, he has diplomatic immunity. So there's all these, and it's not just diplomats, it's other you know, people who work at the embassies. I don't, I don't know exactly how far down it goes. I don't think everybody at the embassy gets this, but certainly many of the hires up get diplomatic immunity. So the diplomat from Azerbaijan is driving down Connecticut Avenue, runs over a pedestrian. The DC cop pulls him over and he says, Please don't bother me, I'm a diplomat. Go away. And that's it. Basically, it becomes a diplomatic incident. These things get worked out, but it's not by the cop grabbing this guy and dragging him to jail. Okay. That's Northwest D.C. 
Let's talk about Southeast DC. Perhaps, my friend, you've been there or avoided it? I avoided it. <laughs> yeah, not going to go there. <laughs> and why not? What's wrong with Southeast DC? It's crazy. It's crazy bad. You don't want to go there, especially at night. Now, let's think about that. That's interesting because it turns out in the United States, Southeast DC is the most monolithic legal culture in the country. Why do I say that? There's really just one body of law that applies there. It's basically all federal law because it's in the District of Columbia. It's true they have a local government, but basically, I mean, they have some independence. I'll grant you that. D.C. government has some independence, but ultimately, it's under the thumb of Congress. So they have even less polycentricity in their legal system, less diversity in their legal options in Southeast D.C. than you have here in Colorado. Here, right, we've got, we've got Denver law, Colorado law, and federal law. Southeast D.C., they got D.C. law, federal D.C. law. That's it. Worst part of town, and it's got the most uniform, monolithic body of law. Whereas in Northwest, they probably have the most polycentric kind of legal system because you've got all these people walking around in their own little legal bubbles, right? Every one of those diplomats is kind of in, he brings a piece of Azerbaijani law with him or Swedish law or wherever he's from. All these individuals with their own little legal systems are walking around in Northwest DC, bumping into each other, and what? And basically getting along just fine. It's the most peaceful part of town. Now, this does not prove that if you have a polycentric com competitive legal system, everything is roses. And it also doesn't prove that if you have a monolithic legal system, everything is terrible. But it does give us an existence proof of the claim that you don't automatically have chaos if there's competing overlapping legal systems. And also, it gives us an existence proof of the claim that locking everything down and making sure there's one king at the top and no competition for the rules gives us peace and stability. Do you see that? Okay, so that's just an existence proof. Fuller says that's the world we live in, and actually in Northwest DC, you should be really happy that you live in that world. It makes it, well, maybe I shouldn't say it makes it, but it certainly seems to correlate <laughs> with peace and prosperity. So let's talk about the law. I've already given you some of this. Um, I've already told you what the law is under Fuller's definition. I want you to just try to chew on that today. Huh, maybe the law is an enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. If we're going to talk usefully about this, let's throw a few more words out there and define them. This is a definition of the state. Uh, this is from, it's a variation on Max Weber's famous definition, so I'll just let you read that. And it's a useful definition of the state. And we can add to that Fuller's definition of the law, which we covered earlier, and you get this, this definition of status law, because I want you to think about the law as... You got status law and you got polycentric law. Just like I got, you got the statist mail delivery system, the USPS, the Postal Service, and then you got these comp competing, uh, co competitive delivery systems. So here's status law. It's basically this enterprise, it's still an enterprise, it's an ongoing process, of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules which are administered by this body that claims a monopoly on the use of coercion within a geographic area claims a monopoly on the initiation of coercion within a particular territory. 
So, you know, that is the kind of law that probably most of you think about when people talk about the law. If your friend says, I got legal problems, you don't think he ate bacon and his rabbi's going to be mad with him. <laughs> He's in trouble with God. You think there's a cop after him and he'll be in jail. But I want us to talk about another kind of law, polycentric law, and that's when you have these competing legal systems. Sometimes they're cooperating, actually, but the important point is they're sort of overlapping. It's a mixed system, and people have choices about which rules will govern their behavior. That's the important thing. They have these choices. It can come from custom or it can be privately produced. I guess all the examples we've talked about have been... Um, no, actually, we've, we've talked about both examples, haven't we? Privately produced, privately produced polycentric legal systems could be those that come from clubs or organizations which are sort of built in a, in a formal way, like IHS. Or if you belong to a sports club, or maybe you belong to a fraternity. Anybody belong to a fraternity? You know, they got all kinds of rules about what you can do in the house and not. And even when you're out of the house, especially in recent years, you boys missed the party days. It used to be pretty crazy. They really locked down on frats. But anyhow, now there's lots of rules. That's privately produced. There's also customary legal systems, and religion's a good example of that. The people of the book have been laying down laws for their faith for millennia. Lots of custom surrounding religion. Both of these are totally legitimate. It's just two different ways to get rules. All right? So there's just some things to think about. This is all descriptive, really. I'm just trying to get you to think about the law in a broad way. So let's talk now. Well, let me take a breath here. Are there questions about that? So I've tried now to just kind of give you an idea of a way of looking at the law. For some of you, it's uh, maybe something new. I saw some nodding. Maybe for some of you, it's like, oh, yeah, good old lawn fooler. I'm all over that. All right. You'll have a chance, too, to ask me more questions later if they come to you. You'll get them from your discussion groups, too. But let's talk now about the origins of the law. So if that's what the law is, where does the law come from? It arises as a spontaneous order, by and large. And you might say, what? What's a spontaneous order? And I see that Deanna's going to have a talk on this, and I encourage you to pay attention to that. You can also watch this video I prepared for Learn Liberty, uh, and... Uh, I'm not going to link on it, click on it now, but you know, you can look it up or just go to learnliberty.org and you can watch this short video if you want to. I mean, it's a video, so it doesn't have a lot of footnotes and everything, which is what I like in my media, but you know, it's got pictures, which is kind of fun. What is a spontaneous order? Well, um, in very brief, it's an order that is the result of human action, but not human design. The English language is a good example of a spontaneous order. No one sits down and says, we are now going to use the word Twitter. I mean, somebody in Silicon Valley probably said, please let them use Twitter. <laughs> let that become a word in the jargon. But, you know, there's plenty of people who tried to invent words for us to adopt, and we ignored it. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen with language. It just happens. Nobody plans it. That's a spontaneous order. And Hayek said the law is the same way. F.A. Hayek, one of my favorite thinkers, said, the law is a spontaneous order. There's no way to be sure in a vacuum, in the abstract, before the fact, what kind of rules are going to let people live together peacefully in, pro in peace and prosperity. And so basically, just as human society has evolved, rules have evolved with human society. Indeed, human society is possible only because We've adopted rules that allow us to live together. 
So think of this little thought experiment. You got some pretty primitive humans living together on maybe the savanna. And they're trying different experiments and living together. You've got tribe A and tribe B. And tribe A says, tell you what, let's try. Let's try just killing each other pell-mell. Let's see how that works. And tribe B says, tell you what, let's not do that. <laughs> let's try something along the lines of respecting other people's personal integrity and their property rights too. These two different tribes are both competing for resources in a very harsh environment. It's very important to cooperate with your fellow humans. One of those tribes is going to do better than the other. I think we know in retrospect, if we couldn't figure it out beforehand, which of those tribes is going to thrive. Maybe beforehand, maybe beforehand, it'd be a little hard to figure this out. I'm using an extreme example. You know, if I said to you, do you think people who kill each other pell-mell are going to do well together? You're going to answer no. But the law is much more subtle than that. I mean, there's much more subtle questions like, do you think that we should have strict liability rules for trespass, or should everything be done on a negligence basis? You know, these are very subtle choices, and it's hard to be certain what's going to work. Different societies have done things in different ways. Those societies that selected good and useful rules thrived, and those that did not have largely disappeared. The folks who decided, let's try to kill each other pell-mell and have no sanctions for that, those people, those societies are not around. I should be careful. Those societies are not around. This doesn't mean all the people in those societies died because they're not idiots. They're living in this world where you can throttle your neighbor just because you don't like them. And they can see, this is a disaster. We're living in the dirt. We're eating grubs. I'm scared all the time. But when I go and visit Tribe B, everybody's smiling. And they have goats. I want goats. What are they doing over there that we got to do here? And you learn. So the humans basically, they, they leave societies, immigration, emigration, they leave societies that don't work, they kind of look over the fence and they say, what are they doing over there that works so well? And they learn from that. So this kind of evolution doesn't mean the individuals die, but systems of law that don't work disappear effectively. Hayek taught us that. And so he said basically, this happens so early, it even predates, it even predates humanity. You go outside and you hear birds singing. <whistles> Sounds very pretty. What's going on there? Are the birds making music because they like music? No. What, what are they doing? Communicating. They're communicating. And what are birds saying when they go? <whistles> um, to be telling them what their territory. Okay. So one thing they're saying is, "This is my basically my property." They're they're saying to the other robins, "You come over here. I'm going to flip and peck your eyes out because this is my nest area." Either that or they're saying, hey, baby, I got a nice nest, right? That's basically what goes on with the birds. So you say, hey, baby, I got a nice nest, which is still property rights, and you, I'll let, I'll let you in my nest, baby. And then they're saying to the other birds, you stay away. It's property rights. The birds don't even know that word. I don't know, maybe a parrot can say property rights. The robins can't. They have property rights. Did anybody say to the robins, we hereby decree you will have these property rights and violations of the property rights? No. They just do it. And it's the same with humans. Probably before humans could even speak, they were respecting these laws of human conduct. Why? Because if they didn't, they didn't survive. It's that simple. It goes back that far. That's where the law comes from. You can even think about this, my computer modeling friends. I know some of you, probably those of you studying with Alex, will find this especially uh, resonant. You can even imagine sort of modeling human society as you would uh, a computer game. And really, what it takes is 
three things. You take individual agents. You can't have law if it's just you on a desert island, right? You've got to have a society, more than one person, with conflicting ends. So you've got agents who don't agree about things. My coconut. No, it's my coconut. So they're conflicting. Scarce resources. And they can pose mutually credible threats. Now, if one big guy says, it's my coconut, and the other person says, it's my coconut, you know, that gets resolved pretty quickly. But if they can pose mutually credible threats, they don't agree, and you have individuals who can be in conflict, imagine those elements. You put these, think of like a computer program. You put them in kind of in a box, and you just shake it. <laughs> With those constraints, laws will emerge. Laws will emerge from that spontaneously. We can predict in the abstract what those laws will look like, but we can't be certain. That is a very interesting idea. For, for many people, it's shocking because you, many people have the view, well, I know where the law comes from. There's a king, or in our case, you know, it's a constitutional republic, but there's a president at the top, or Congress, whoever you think is at the top, and, you know, and they issue the rules, and they kind of filter down from above, and we do things because we have to, and, well, because if we don't, they'll throw us in jail. That's what the law is all about. It's some guy with a stick, basically. Maybe he's voted, voted. They say, listen, I vote to give him the stick. But many people think that's where the law comes from, and I'm here to say, no, I really don't think so. That is one way to deliver some of the law. That's not where the law comes from. It's not even predominantly how the law influences our life. On a day-to-day -day basis, if you think about the rules that govern your conduct, Okay, traffic laws for sure, but maybe you live in an apartment complex with rules or a frat, you're at a university that has rules, you're at an, a special event that has special rules. Day to day, from minute to minute, what governs your behavior is probably not that stuff that comes from the guy with the stick. It's probably those other sources of law. So there's a, an account of where the law comes from. This is not, I will tell you, this is not the view of every classical liberal. I find this account attractive, but you should understand, people who love liberty don't always agree about why it's important and exactly how to defend it. I'm just one guy among many who finds this account persuasive. So you have a different account, that's good, I want to give you this version, but it's a, these are natural rights, they come from a natural process. So they're natural rights in that sense. There's other accounts of natural rights, that's the one I want to share with you. So let's talk a little bit about what you get under this view of law. Bruce Benson did the work for us. He went out in the field and he studied a variety of so-called primitive societies. In fact, primitive societies, so-called primitive societies, often have very sophisticated legal systems. Very sophisticated. In a way, they have to be more sophisticated than hierarchically arranged societies which have a guy with a stick. It's easy to have the law in, say, a military situation, you got the general at the top, and if you don't do what he says, he throws you in the brig. It's very clear-cut. Well, you can't do that in some of these primitive societies. There's much less of a hierarchical establishment. It's much more cooperative. Benson went out and studied lots of these customary societies, and he found these sorts of things cropped up again and again. Look at some of these. To a friend of liberty, some of these look pretty good. Concern for individual rights and private property. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, no, they told me in my anthropology class that the, the, the Native Americans, they didn't, you know, it was all like the earth is our mother and they didn't respect property rights. Well, 
I, I, you might have been exposed to that. And there is actually German truth to that. It is true that the Plains Indians did not have property rights in land. Because why? They had more land than they knew what to do with. But they did have property rights. If you went up to a Cherokee and said, oh, nice robe, I'll be taking that because you guys don't respect property rights, huh? Uh, you wouldn't get it very far. They had property rights in the things that were scarce. Nice blankets, horses, robes, teepees. They had property rights in what we call in the law personal property, not real property, not land. Back east, where there was a scarcity of arable land or land that was good hunting territory, they did have property rights, and they took them very seriously. Don't let your anthropology professors tell you otherwise. That's a very common feature of primitive, so-called primitive, I'll say customary societies. They have property rights. Look at some of the other things here. They do have procedures to avoid, it's not every man for himself. They have procedures to deal with violent behavior. They don't like violence. Societies don't do well with violence. You have to have a way to keep the peace, and these customary societies do it, but they do it without jails and courts and police officers. You have to read Benson to go all the details. It's fascinating. It really is. This is one thing they do. If you do something to somebody that is a wrong to their person, say you wound them, there's no jail. What are you going to do? You're going to throw somebody in jail? There's no jail. What do you do? You have to pay the victim damages. You might have to say give two sheep to somebody if you cut off their finger. Some of these customary legal codes were very exacting. They had a special price for a finger, a special price for two fingers, a special price for a hand, elbow, arm. It was all graded. It's fascinating. You pay the damages, you're off the hook. You don't pay the damages, they can kill you without suffering retribution. So I will not go through all this. It's very interesting to note that these are attractive features to someone who respects liberty. and They have served many cultures long and well and they have been observed in the field. This is what you really see when you go out there and you see what stateless societies do for law. Let's say a little bit more about the origins of law and then I'll send you guys out and you can come up with questions or chat about this. So you might say, well, that customary law sounds kind of interesting. How did we get from there to here? There's still customary law around, but it's not the only thing to be sure. We have got this hierarchical system of law, the guy with the stick. How did we get there? Well, I'm going to go through this kind of quickly because I don't know that this will interest everybody. Those of you who are economists will find this more uh, approachable, perhaps. So I'm going to flip through a few screenshots real quickly, just show it to you, and you can look at the notes and talk about it later with me if you like. But here's the problem. Here's what basically this is the account I'll give. Here's how you get a state legal system. Remember, providing the law is a service industry. Well, it turns out, though, that arguably this is a natural monopoly. The problem is, it's like a bridge. A bridge is a natural monopoly. If you build a bridge across the river, one bridge does it. You typically don't need two bridges. To build another bridge right next to the other bridge is just not economically useful. Bridges are expensive. If there's a bridge there already, unless it's a big city like Denver and you really need two bridges, it's a little town, big river, you build the bridge, you're done. You walk away. Don't build any more bridges. Not efficient. Legal systems might well be the same way. Certainly, if you're, say, in Mesopotamia, and you're setting up the first civilization, and 
you've worked with the priests to lay out the irrigation ditches and you've come up with a way to regulate the population through your legal system. It's the first city-state. That probably does it in terms of giving rules to those people. It's a natural monopoly, as economists would say. Okay, now, take a deep breath. I'm going to go through this quick like. My economist friends will recognize this. It's a pretty standard picture. Pretty standard picture here of a natural monopoly. This is just a picture of the government as a service industry. Here's how much it costs per, per unit of governance services. And this is the amount of government that you get. And there is a demand for government, right? At a certain point, there's too much government. You don't want as much. You know, this is a pretty standard curve. All right, I said I'd go through this quickly. And I'm just adding some stuff here. Okay, economist friends, you recognize this? Right, you do. This is a picture. This is all so far very standard. Now I'm going to get crazy on you. Well, I'm just saying government's a service industry. It's a natural monopoly. You're going to get this picture just like you get the picture of a, of a utility company. This could be an electric power company or it could be a bridge. Same story. But here's what happens with governments. It gets interesting. Governments invent consent. If it's a power company, it's very easy for you to regulate how much power you're getting from the power company because it's expressly consensual. If they try to give you more kilowatts than you want, it's all on the basis of contract law and you say, no thank you, no more electricity for me today. And you're done. It's just contract law. Governments have different rules. Governments invent consent. They kind of invent their own demand curve. So the government says, oh yeah, they actually, the people out there, we don't ask them because we don't do this on a contract basis. But trust us, it's this hypothetical consent. We figured this all out. We read Rawls. <laughs> we tell you, this is how much demand there is for government service. Do you know this because you went out and you asked each person, do you want some more government? Do you want some more government? No. They just assumed it. And if you think this through, as I have, I would argue you end up with this kind of picture. I'll show you one more and I'll let you go. If that's your demand curve, this is non-express consent, <laughs> you can actually end up supplying so much government that there's negative demand. Negative demand. I see you squinting. All right, I said I'd go through this quickly. We could talk about this later. I just want to show this to you, my economist friends, so you'll think about it. So basically, um, that's how we arguably end up, arguably end up with too much law but even today, if you think we have too much law, there's still a lot of competition in legal services. We already talked about this. Even in the United States, you've got municipal, state, and federal law. In international trade, an area where no one government can control everything, they have the law merchant. Different countries compete with each other. Has anybody moved to the United States? Are you immigrants, anybody? Maybe you did that, or your parents? And maybe it was because you or your parents decided, you know, they're doing things in the United States I like. I want to have property rights and the rule of law. So governments compete for human capital. And as we've discussed, even in the United States today, you have things like churches, fraternities, universities, private clubs, condominium associations, trade associations. Unions have their own kind of court systems. There's all these various overlapping legal systems, even today, even though it's true the government has kind of through that phenomenon I described, grown and offered us more law than we want, still there's competition 
even the, in the, under those circumstances, we still have competition. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a breath here and give you guys a break. All right, thank you. Thank you all for your good questions. Why don't I start with those, and then I'll go back to the lecture and try to get to some of these. <laughs> this one I had to chuckle at um, because I think you know the answer to your own question. Do lawmakers have an incentive to create laws which favor themselves as opposed to society in general? Well, I always say, I, it's, a, it's a running joke of my students that I say this to almost every question. Good question, what do you think? Good question, what do you think? And that's in part because I want them to think for themselves, right? But come on, you know, who asked this? You know the answer to this, don't you? Well, yeah. In fact, we have a, we have a talk about this, Isaac, I think, don't we, about public choice theory? Deanna's going to tell us about this. So basically, yes, they have a powerful incentive to create laws which fade themselves. Now, by the way, it's not as if people in government are any different from people anywhere else. That's one of the major lessons of public choice theory. The people at FedEx have every incentive in the world to structure their rules so it always works in FedEx's favor. So what constrains them is not that they're better people than the people of the United States Postal Service. It's that they have different incentives. Because if FedEx tries to ream you, you go to UPS. To some degree, the United States Postal Service has that competition too, but they have special perks. Did you know, for example, those mailboxes you see, you know, on a pole like this, all right, that mailbox, FedEx cannot put mail in there, not allowed, UPS not allowed. In fact, that is strictly speaking, that is federal property. You pay for it yourself, you put it on your land, it's federal property. Only the Postal Service gets to use that. They have a monopoly, which is one reason why their service is often mocked as less efficient. So anyhow, yes, absolutely, we'll hear more about that later. I'll get back to those later. Let's look at these. Is there an existing framework for decentralizing law and legal order while preserving the rule of law? That's a great question. Um, and to me, that's one of the most interesting challenges for Friends of Liberty is to try to develop exit options. Exit options that do not involve screaming revolution and lining up people against the wall. Because although I'm all about revolution, it's at the margin. Always at the margin. And I don't know how far we can go towards making things more free, towards giving people more choice in their legal rules, but I do think we can be more free than we are now. So my whole strategy, if you hang around libertarians long enough, you'll see, get a few beers in them, and oh man, they will debate for hours. We could get by without any state. No, we couldn't. We have to have a monarchist society. Oh yeah, well here's... Blah, 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 blah. You know what my view of that is? Basically, I don't know. But I do know we can be a little more free so let's get a little more free, and then we'll look around. And if that works, let's try getting a little more free. We'll just keep moving towards more freedom. And I don't know how far we can go. But let's just see if we can get a little closer to wherever we can go. So, so basically, great question. I'll tell you one thing that's interesting that in this area. I'm working on this. In fact, I got a, I got a, a talk coming up. Oh, golly, is it week, next week or the week after? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> i got to check my calendar. Uh, whoops, I misspelled it. Seasteading. Has anybody heard about seasteading? Yeah, I'm fascinated by this. Uh, Patry Friedman, who's an acquaintance of mine, and the son of David Friedman, who's the son of Milton Friedman, um, started this seasteading institute. And uh, basically their goal, crazy as it may sound, is to um, develop sovereign entities on the high seas. Now, I don't know engineering-wise and socially if it's going to work, but man, they got huevos. I think it's so great that they're 
they're trying to do this, and that sort of thing. Now, Patry, by the way, has left the Seasteading Institute, which he set up, and now he's working at a charter city startup, um, a for-profit organization that goes to, say, a country like Honduras. And Honduras looks around and they say, man, we're more poor than we should be. We've got smart people. We've got resources. Why are we so poor? And the reason is because they've got crummy government. Nobody wants to pour their money in Honduras because they're worried it's going to be not to pick on Honduras. It could be any country, even the United States. Uh, but nobody wants to pour money in our country because they don't trust that we have the rule of law. So the plan with these charter cities is basically the Honduran government says, look, we're going to give you this acreage around this bay, so you have a port and here's some rail lines, and now we're going to step back. And in this 400,000 acres, you set up your city with your own rules. You let our people come in and work. Maybe they live on site or they live off, but we're not going to muck around with your private property rights and your rules of contract law. You're going to bring those in in this little territory within our boundaries, and we're going to charge you a license fee. So we get money from it, which is why we'll do it. And you're going to stimulate all kinds of economic growth in the region. And now they're starting to do that. So it's another example. It's kind of like seasteading, but based on land. Those kinds of experiments to me are fascinating. And that's what I think we need to look at. It's a way of increasing. It's decentralizing legal order. It's increasing legal choice. But this, arguably, if you do it right, can preserve the rule of law. But let's admit, we don't know for certain. We don't know for certain. The thing about spontaneous orders is they're very unpredictable. And what could be more unpredictable than oh, an entire society? That's what I say to my anarcho-capitalist friends who say, I know this will work. We can get rid of all government. It worked in Iceland. And I'll just say, well, you know, maybe. <laughs> it has worked before. But you're talking about something really complicated, and I've learned that humans are really bad about predicting the growth of societies. So, you know, I'm willing to give it a try, but there's only so much money I'll put on that bet. Um, why does government overprovide government itself rather than underprovide like other monopolies? This is an interesting question. I think the thing you've got to focus on is government itself. Remember, I said government is it's a service industry, and the law is one of the things the service industry provides. It's a service industry. Uh, just like you might go, as I did at the airport today, never done this before, can highly recommend it, and I got one of these massages. I got off the plane, and I was like all twisted up, so I got my neck and shoulders worked on. It was awesome. That's what I paid for. They gave me a massage. The thing with government is what you pay for is governing services. Governing. What's that mean? It means it makes things regular. It keeps the peace. It, it prevents people from invading. It ensures that contracts are enforced. It keeps homeless people out of your front yard. That's what the service you pay for should be. Just like you go to a massage. And you're supposed to work out your kinks. The problem is when you get a monopoly, you get lazy. And the stuff they provide, they call government, but it's not the service you want. It's cops putting on riot gear and kicking down doors in the middle of the night so they can catch somebody with a doobie. And then they call that government. That's like me going to the massage place and say, okay, hold still, we got a sledgehammer here, we're going to give you a massage. If they had a monopoly, they could get away with that, especially if you couldn't escape. It's very hard to escape government, right? You gotta, if you don't like the federal government's drug policy, You've got to go to Canada. And they're even hassling the Canadians to enforce our drug laws. So there's a thing to focus on. What they oversupply is not really the thing you want. <laughs> they're oversupplying something we can call government, but it's really more like getting hit with a sledgehammer when you're trying to get a massage. Do you see my point? And it's all because they don't have the right incentives. Because why? Because they don't have enough competition. I don't want to overmake over that point, though, because even in the federal system today, there is competition. When I was driving the highway, taking the taxi from the airport, 
from uh, to downtown here. I was looking at all the factories, and I thought, they still make stuff here. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, Colorado, people build factories, and they work in factories, and they make stuff because they don't do that so much in California anymore. And I thought, that's wonderful that businesses that are getting screwed over in California can flip off Sacramento and come to Colorado. And that's wonderful, and that constrains Sacramento, and that helps me. Because I do want to stay in California, because they have surf, and you guys don't. Um, all right, so, okay, so let's go. I got this one. I tried to get to all these. Does a unitary system create a moral hazard on the citizens? I'm not sure I understand this. I, I, I might have to ask you to clarify this. I mean, yeah, let me ask you to clarify. Do you have a particular example in mind, maybe? Well, what I was saying was with that southeast Washington, D.C. kind of thing. Uh-huh. With having that unitary system in place and having, I guess you could say, less law enforcement on the streets, you can almost create a, see it creating moral hazard where people are going to be more risky to go out. Like if I'm a crack dealer, was the example that I use. If I sell crack on the street and I'm on the corner and I got a particular corner I like to go to, if I'm not seeing cops driving around because there's less, we're under, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. unitary system, then... Uh-huh. I'm going to be more likely to stay out there and sell crack for my personal benefit. I see. Especially if police are covering events, you know, like a foreign dignitary coming. I see, I see. Like, and that's where we were talking about because of the shadow that's probably cast over southeast Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. as opposed to the Beltway, which mm-hmm. is going to receive a lot of attention. And that could also potentially create a moral hazard just in that so much attention is being paid to one certain section of the city. Uh-huh that it frees up a lot of areas for another part of the city to have stuff. Sure. Yeah, I see your point. Um, And yes, I think you already understand this. Again, you guys are coming up with questions. I think you already know the answer. But but let me qualify something here. You see, I don't think in southeast D.C. Now, granted, I haven't visited there a lot myself. But the way I understand it works there is they actually have a lot of police presence in terms of enforcing a drug war. I mean, there are cops who go and catch people on street corners and throw them in jail. And that's one reason those communities are basically shattered, because a huge percentage of the young males are just out of the picture. They're not there for their families. They're in jail. They're not getting education. They come out, they're unemployable. They picked up terrible habits, made the wrong kinds of friends in jail, and they're put back in the community. It's just a disaster. What the drug war has done to the African-American community is obscene. And, and, And the NAACP is now on it. They have come out finally, recently, uh, and publicly said the drug war is wrecking our, our communities. So this is a good example of this. What's happening in Southeast D.C. is they're providing, they're over-providing police services of a certain sort, but they're under-providing basic protection of people's rights in terms of not being assaulted. The cops are out there busting the guys dealing crack because why? Because that's an easy bust. <laughs> you go get an informant, and plus you get to seize their assets. You catch them with, you know, a nice car, you get to take that back to police headquarters. You go, and somebody complains, oh, I was assaulted. What's in the cops for that? Oh, man, they got to go investigate. There's no assets to seize for assault. That's the problem. The incentives for the cops are all messed up. And now let's talk about the incentives that creates for the citizens. All right, so that um, is going to make it less uh, scary for them if they realize the cops out there, you see a cop driving down the street, he's looking for crack dealers, you realize he's not coming after me even though I beat up some guy in the neighboring gang because why? That's not the kind of crime they're interested in. And yes, that does skew 
what the public views as, you know, what's right and wrong. And again, it just wrecks those communities. It's terrible. There's courageous and honorable people in those communities who are doing the best they can, for sure. But man, they got the cards stacked against them. All right, back over here now. Can you explain the graphs more? Well, maybe. I don't want to bore the folks who don't want to hear it. I'll try to tackle these two things quickly. What's the supply curve of government? How is the curve derived? Uh, with apologies to those of you who are going to immediately doze off. So let me just look at this one, okay? Well, let me go back to this very first one. This is a demand curve like any demand curve, okay? This could be apples. Let's say it's apples and not government, all right? If you have a high price per apple, way up there, you're not going to get, people aren't going to buy a lot of apples at $10 an apple. You might find somebody who's really hungry, and they'll buy $10 per apple. They'll buy one apple. You're only going to sell one apple because you get that hungry guy, and now you're done. You lower the price of apples to $1 an apple, you're going to sell more. Okay, do you see that? That's just a demand curve like any demand curve. This also tells you your revenue. This is your revenue per apple, your average revenue, because basically if you sell 10 apples at a dollar a piece, you're, you know, it's, especially when there's one provider, your demand measures out your average revenue. This is the way it usually works. This is the way these demand curves work. That's marginal cost. I don't know if I want to get into that, but I will. I'm just gonna, I just wanted to get the demand curve for those of you who are not familiar with economic graphs. And now let's jump ahead to this last one. So all I'm saying is, you know, government, like apples, like massages, there's a demand for it. And we will pay a certain price for a certain amount of governing, governing services. You know, it, uh, I'll just say that. I mean, it's just like apples or massages. And that's where this curve comes from. There's that same curve again. The rest of these things I'm not going to get into. It's useful for drawing out a picture of a nat natural monopoly, but not for this story I want to tell. So that's your, you know, your demand curve in a normal market. In a normal market, you only have transactions when everybody agrees. If I go into the massage place and they say $100 for a minute, and I go, whoa, no, I'm not that kinked up. And then we bargain it out, or they've, they've discovered basically what their price point is. They have an interesting kind of menu. I actually studied it for a while, you know, seeing how they did their pricing. They, you know, the, if you add five minutes, then they add like five bucks. You add another five minutes, ah, they only add three dollars. It's the kind of thing anyone would do. So I studied it for a while before I decided what I wanted done. And they have to have express consent. They can't take the money out of my pocket. We got to agree. That's what economists always talk about. Economists are always talking about express consent. This is an attempt to capture another kind of economic transaction where you don't have express consent. It's a little bit like the people in the airport, if they could see me walking by and I'm going like this, I'm going, ah, and they could just grab me and say, you, you need a massage. Boom. Hey, wait, wait, I didn't demand, I didn't, I didn't ask for this. They say, no, we saw you rub your neck. You really do want this massage. And I'm sitting there going, go away. I don't. I got to go cash my plane. And they're saying, we're not using express consent. That's fine for other businesses. Government says, we don't use express consent. It's too much trouble to get everybody to agree. Let's just assume they want government. And that's how it works. Let's just assume you're living here. You must want government. Well, you get to vote. There's some consent, and I'll concede there's some consent, but no one takes, where's my pocket constitution? It's actually in the pocket of my, the pocket of my, uh, I always carry around a pocket constitution. I got it in my bag up there. 
especially when I'm traveling. Got to have that Fourth Amendment ready. No one comes around, thank you. No one comes around with the Constitution and says, would you like to sign on the dotted line, sir? <laughs> they don't give you that option. They just say, hey, here's some government. <laughs> and and you, you must have read Lysander Spooner. Oh, Lysander Spooner has a whole essay, No Treason. It's wonderful. If you're the kind of guy who cares about the Constitution, you should read it. Lysander Spooner, No Treason. Love that essay. And the whole point I'm trying to make here is, Government invents its own demand curve. It invents its own demand curve. And now I've just replicated the usual economic curve. It's fat and fuzzy because it's kind of hard to figure out exactly how, what the demand is. It's fuzzy. That's why it's kind of fat like that and kind of, you know, shaded. This is nice and clean and sharp because you can see when people put money on the table and the service of the goods go across, the dollar per apple, boom, very nice and clearly defined. Government's much more fuzzy. It's a little unclear how much government people want. So that's why it's drawn that way. Now, the rest from here, and I don't know if I want to get into it, but basically, I'm, I'll, I think I should probably stop there. But you asked, can I explain the graphs a little more? And what I'm trying to do here, my friends, is to perform the same sort of analysis economists do for normal market transactions for what is instead a political exchange. And it's the first attempt at this. I had to make this up my own. I might not have gotten it right. You economists, I'm not an economist. I've studied law and economics. But you might later say, no, that's not the way to do it, Tom, and I'm all ears. But that's what I've tried to do here. And so that's, I tried to explain it more. And the supply of government is, again, that's how I got that curve. They're kind of making it up. And the hazard of them making it up is... They could end up, oh, there was one more. They can end up, and I think arguably have, they can end up oversupplying government. They say, here's how much government people really want. That's what we think they want. And then we're going to supply the amount where, let's see, which of these curves is it? It's the, our marginal cost across the marginal revenue. And where do you, oh, no, sorry, are we up here? No, no, wait a minute. I'm, kind of, I'm sorry, say it again for us all. Yeah, the price is way up here where it, yeah, and then we, it, that's, that's the price they're going to give us. The, the, the short of it is, I want to say, is they end up oversupplying government. The idea is, if you went around with that constitution and you offered it to people saying, you like the amount of federal government you're getting right now, a lot of people would say no. This is another thing economists don't talk about much. They don't usually talk about the oversupply of goods and services, but it can happen. Think about this. I'm selling apples. $10, Apple, $10, I, get, I sell one. That's it? Okay. Um, I'll lower the price even more. And I keep lowering the price and lowering the price, and I keep supplying more and more apples. But I can get to the point where I come up with a, 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 a whole truck of apples. And you say, you know, I ate some of your apples earlier. Good apples, I'm good on apples. And I say, no, you've got to take these. <laughs> and I just unload all these apples on you, and you're buried in apples. At that point, you say, that, I got negative demand for apples. You're effectively polluting with the apples now. If you oversupply goods, you're polluting. And that's what's happening with government services. It's like the people at the massage place. If they said, we so much like working on your back, we're not going to let you go. <laughs> I'm now suffering false imprisonment. They've worked out the kinks, but I got to go. I got to come talk to these students. Same thing can happen with government. All right, so I think I got most of these. Boom, 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 unitary system. Okay, I think I got all these. I tried to. So let me go back and say a little more about a few other things that were in my lecture. Remember, I kind of broke it in half so we'd all get a break. So let me talk about the last thing here on my outline.
We talked about what the law is and where it comes from. What is it? It's the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from lots of places, but initially it arises spontaneously because it helps us live together in peace and prosperity. And then later it, becomes, uh, it comes from all other sources. Let's talk about the law today. As I've noted, we live in a system today that is polycentric. That's part of my job here today, is to get you to open your eyes to the fact that we already live in this world that is pretty polycentric, meaning there's lots of competing sources of law. And you guys, you know this at some level because you exercise choice. You decide what church to go to. You decide what frat to join. You decide what clubs to belong to. You are already making these choices. So I want you to recognize you're making these choices and think about expanding the range of things that you might want to choose to include in such things as rules about whether or not you can smoke a doobie, for example. That's something a lot of people would like a choice about. So Fuller said, if you think about the laws, the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the government's of rules, this happens all over the place. Churches, clubs, schools, labor unions. He says, in this country alone, he's talking about the United States, which is an especially polycentric place, the United States, and that's one of its strengths. It's one of the things that makes the United States strong and great and free, is that there's a relatively large amount of competition in legal systems relative to other countries. He says there are in this country alone systems of law, as he defines it, as I want you to think about it, at least today, right now, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. That's the world we actually live in, and it's a good thing. In fact, we should get more of that in our world. Here's another thing I want to tell you about the law that is related to that point, but is not exactly the same. And I just want to tell you about the common law. Because a lot of people, when they think about the law, they think it's the guy with the stick and the guy with the badge, and the orders come from on top, and I obey them, or they throw me in jail. And that is part of the law, but it's not the only part of the law. That is statutory law. Those are like the rules on the back of the monopoly box. It's the laws that Congress passes and the president signs and judges interpret. That's not the only source of the law, though. There's this thing called the common law, which is a very real part of the law. And instead of coming from the top down, it comes from the bottom up. The common law originates in the decisions of lots of judges in different courts. So this judge has a contract dispute between someone who promised delivery of cement and didn't deliver on time, and the other party suffered damages because their house wasn't built on time. And the judge decides what the rights of these parties are. And this judge hears a dispute about the delivery of flowers, and somebody ordered flowers for their wedding, and they didn't show up on time, and they suffered heartbreak. And the judge makes a decision about the rights of the parties. And this decision is about, you see where this is going, the delivery of crackers to a restaurant. They weren't delivered. What are the damages? The judge decides. All these different decisions and lots of different disputes, and out of this, like a mist rising from a meadow, the law sort of becomes a phenomenon that you can abstract. And go, oh, I looked at all these decisions, and in each case, the judge did this. And whatever that, those judges did, that's the common law. You see the difference? It's lots of individual disputes. Each one decided a little differently, but you can see the pattern arise out of these individual decisions. That starts with customary practices. How do judges decide those cases? Ideally, they say, huh. Well, so you've got to fight over your cement delivery. 
What normally happens in your industry when people don't deliver cement? Oh, they get in trouble? Oh, they have to pay how much? Well, that makes sense. So judges will look at that and it influences the court decisions. And it turns out the court decisions do also influence what people do. So I mean, it's just back and forth influence. Further up at the top, the court decisions are read by commentators, eggheads like me. We read lots and lots and lots of opinions and we say, huh, there's a pattern here. And we enunciate this pattern and that influences judges. Judges say, well, I'm going to look at what people do on the ground, but I'm also going to look up and see what commentators, experts who've looked at lots of similar decisions, what they say the rule is. So that's this process. It's complicated. It's like a tapestry over time that's woven. But I just want you to get a feel for how very different it is from a top-down system. And my point here is not an especially sort of this is pro-liberty and statutes are anti-liberty. My point here is simply you don't really understand the law, the legal system in the United States at least, unless you understand these two sources of law. It comes sometimes from on top, going down, statutes, but it also comes from the bottom up. Both can be pro-liberty, both sometimes. It's more likely statutes will be anti-liberty, frankly, because of public choice reasons Deanna's going to tell us about. Sometimes, though, the common law gets things wrong, and we correct it with statutes. That can happen. I just want you to understand these two phenomena. That's just sort of, I want to send you out of the room with a deeper understanding of the American legal system. So that's the law today. You've got the common law versus statutory law. I've already made these points. The beauty of the common law is that it embodies these few simple rules. It's very simple. Statutory law is mind-bendingly complex. The common law is pretty basic. Its application can be difficult. It's very easy to define what assault is. It's an, it's an un, uh, unconsented, offensive touching. But then you have hard questions. Is it assault if someone tugs on your jacket? Have they touched your person if they tug on your jacket? That's the kind of problem we give to law students, and there's answers. But, you know, it's something you've got to work out. Courts find this common law, whereas legislators just make the law and impose it from the top down on everybody. And the common law is, again, one of these spontaneous orders. And that's a beautiful thing in a lot of respects. The problem with legislatures is they just kind of jam the law on everybody. And we can vote them out if they get it really wrong, but that's a very imperfect process. Because of public choice pressures, I'm going to punt to Deanna on this. So let's wrap it up. I'm going to skip this. You can go see the rule of law. This is about the rule of law. I got a video on that too, but I'm out of time basically. I just want to say the rule of law, I will say this. The law is a service industry, right? We want competition in our services, right? If you're shopping for the law, one of the things that's most important to you is the rule of law. This is a big reason why people end up immigrating to the United States, because they say, we had laws back in my country, it was how much you paid the judge. And that's no way to run an economic system, it's no way to run a legal system. People prefer a system where you have rule of law. It's what consumers ask for in their legal systems. So it's just a very important value. I can't give it justice in the few minutes left to me here, but I do want to point out it's very important to Friends of Liberty. Liberty is not about anarchy in the sense of doing whatever you want. It's not license. It's about choosing the rules that will constrain you. That's what liberty is about. It's about choosing the rules that will constrain you. So just to wrap it up, conclusion. We learned what the law is. It's the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governments of rules. Law came first. The state kind of co-opted it, took it over, established a monopoly, 
but the law is still competitive. It's still a polycentric system, and maybe we should think about getting back to that. That would be a beautiful thing. We still have that system, but it'd be nice if we could maybe have more of that, have more choice. And then I also introduced you to this concept of the common law, and how it's different from statutory law. And um, there's the interesting problem. This is the thing that I think about all the time, and I hope you'll think about it too, and I hope that unlike me, you'll figure it out. <laughs> how can we move to a more decentralized legal order while preserving the rule of law? I think that'd be a beautiful thing. So as soon as you get that figured out, come and tell me. <laughs> Thank you.